You're listening to Consolidate That. Welcome back to Consolidate That. This week, we've got a great episode. We actually had a unique webinar called Piece of the Pie, Incentivizing Veterinarians Through Partnership, where our own Dr. Ivan Zak had the chance to speak with Dr. Karen Felstead and Dr. Beth Davidow, talking about different ways that veterinarians can reclaim more ownership in their own practices. We'd love for you guys to give it a listen, and next week we'll be back to our normal episodes. Thanks a lot. Thank you, everybody, for joining today. Uh, it's an interesting topic today, and it's sort of uh, very timely on our vibrant market. Uh, today's webinar is dedicated to partnership models in consolidation, and, uh, and I'm happy to introduce two of our speakers. So Dr. Beth Davidov, an assistant professor at Washington State University and a consultant at the Veterinary Information Network. She also blogs at the Veterinary Idealist blog. So Beth, can you maybe introduce yourself? Yes, thank you, Ivan. Thanks for having me today. Um, my previous life, I was actually a practice owner and owned two multi-specialty hospitals in Seattle, Washington. Um, practices joined Blue Pearl, and so I've got some experience with both partnerships and also some of the stuff that's going in, on in the market. Excellent. Thank you for that. And then we have Dr. Karen Felsted. I butchered that. My apologies. You just said it okay. <laughs> She's a founder and the consultant of Panthera Tea Company. She's a CPA and an expert in veterinary economics. Karen, why don't you introduce yourself? Happy to. Yeah, so I'm a CPA and a veterinarian, and I um, practiced for a while, but that's that's been a number of years. So I work now with practices. Um, helping them on any aspect financially of their practice, but uh, particularly in the last year or so, most of the work that I've been doing has to do with practice transitions, particularly the sale of practices very often to, to corporate groups. So I'm familiar with partnership models out there and some of the things that, that people need to think about when they're thinking about, um, about selling. Excellent. Thank you for that. And uh, we're going to review a couple of slides before we dive into the conversation. Um, so I'm going to share that in a second here. And we're just going to go um, talk about a couple statistics that we found recently. So, so basically, uh, you guys can see this, right? As I'm sharing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. So uh, there's some trends with consolidation. It's been rampant. It's been crazy last year, and especially with right now, some news that are coming with the companies IPOing. The multiples are crazy. Um, there was about 1,000 practices actually acquired last year, which is almost 50% increase over 2019. And if you think about the situation with the world and everything that's been going on, um, and nothing slowed down this particular process. So uh, many practices will be on the market in 2021. And the, um, and it's just accelerating. And uh, so we think that actually not we, I think it's from uh, Baraki Consulting, their expectation that will be about 25% consolidated as an industry in North America um, in the next year. And the uh, corporate practices will represent about 50% of volume uh, of cases that are seen by the corporate practices. Uh, there's uh, over 50 consolidators on the US market right now, or North American, I should say. I think there's 65 global. Um, and it's been, uh, it's been very frothy sort of environment and they pop, 
you know, uh, every every week you see a new consolidator, we are the week uh, coming with uh, a supposedly new thesis. And uh, we also know that independent practice is approached by 40 to 50 brokers uh, on a daily basis trying to acquire practice because uh, essentially that's another business that sort of evolved from that. So the the owners uh, of the or the sellers, if you will, they're now becoming more picky because if you remember the times when uh, first it was sort of Benefield, it was a one corporate uh, and then VCA came with their model and they had this sort of 100% acquisition uh, where they sort of do a lot of changes and things like that. And, and models evolved. And then further, we've seen other models where there's, you know, retention and, and um, of some of the equity. So sellers become picky, which they should. Uh, it's the professionals that build these businesses for their entire career. And for a lot of them, this is sort of a life event. Uh, of selling their practice. And so, so one of the things that they need to discover along the way is what is the value of the practice? And uh, Karen, uh, since you're dealing with this on a daily basis, can you tell us how it works and, uh, and can it be increased in any way for the seller? Sure. So, I mean, we could talk about practice valuation for a solid day, and I think that's more information than anybody wants. <laughs> but you know, I think just a couple of key points here. One, practice valuation is largely driven by the profits or the EBITDA of the practice. And, you know, that's just essentially what's left over after all of the normal necessary expenses of a practice are, are paid. And then, of course, that, the, that profit level is converted into a value via the use of a multiple. And I think that multiple is a really interesting topic right now. So, you know, if you have profits of 100,000 and a multiple of five, then your practice is worth 500,000. But what's really interesting now is there's such a difference in the kinds of markets out there. If you're gonna sell to an individual veterinarian, your multiple probably is in the range of five. Um, but if you're selling to corporate, um, I, I've, you know, seen multiples that range from four to 22. So right now, um, the corporate multiples tend to be much higher, which really means for a certain level of profitability, assuming you're a decent practice that a corporate group is going to want, and they do have certain parameters, you'll probably get more for the same amount of, of profitability. You know, to the second part of your question about can you improve profitability? Absolutely. Some of it is, is by or improve value, I guess. Some of it's by improving profitability. So if you can reduce your cost of goods sold, if you can use your team members more efficiently, if you can bring more clients in and your veterinarians are more productive. But you can also, there's some intangible things that you can um, um, work on in your practice as well that would influence the value of it. So if you have a more stable workforce, if you have a well-trained team, if you have um, good managers in your practice, if you've got a great marketing campaign, if you're very well thought of in the community, if you have a great facility. So there's lots of things that practice can do to improve their, their value and their, and their profitability. That makes sense. So then the question is, you know, is it a good time right now to sell a practice? Are we in that moment where, you know, as you said, there's such a difference between the corporate? Um, are we in the bubble? Some people say that, that it's kind of inflating, inflating to the multiples. I mean, 22 is now astronomical compared to someone who sold it. So, so is it the good time to sell a practice or not? 
And this is just for the entire industry. You can tell them right now and they'll do what you say. So don't worry. <laughs> <No pressure. laughs> I mean, I think it's a great time to sell now. If you're thinking of selling in the next five years, you know, if you're 40 and you're going to practice for the next 20 or 25 years and you don't really have an alternate plan in place. No, it probably doesn't make sense to, to sell now because you'll make as much money continuing to practice, assuming you're doing well on the practice and then you'll still be able to sell it at the end. Um, if you're thinking of selling in the next couple of years, yeah, I would certainly start looking. I think the bubble question is really interesting, and I'm not sure any of us have perfect crystal balls here. You know, to me, the big question, we're in a bubble, I think. It's how big is that bubble? How long is that bubble going to last, right? Yeah. So so with that, Beth, a uh, question to you. Um, I mean, you know, Karen men mentioned a couple of things there that if you're if you're planning to practice continuously. So there are now models, I think, that allow to sort of continue practicing after acquisition. So so what are the different partnership models that you see today? And, uh, you know, you sold your practices. Were they available then and, and whether you wish they were? Uh, if you can open up on that a little bit. Yeah, I guess I would say a couple of things. You know, one of the things you talked a little bit about 25% of the market being kind of owned by consolidators right now. I think we have to talk a little bit about the difference between primary care practices and specialty practices. The specialty market is 75 to 80% consolidated. Mm -hmm. It is way farther along on that road. And I think, you know, that makes it very, very different um, in terms of both what it's like to be a veterinarian, what it means to finish, what is that going to mean for the profession. Um, when we made the decision to sell our practice, we actually, what happened with us is we were cold called by lots of different people saying we want to buy your practice. We were originally not thinking about selling, but we were in a point where we had two locations and we needed a third location. My partner was 15 years older than me and wanted to retire. And I could not by myself afford to both buy her out and to buy, build a new facility. And so what I was looking for was actually a different partner. And the partners in my practice, we had actually, I think this is what's happened to a lot of people is we had really aimed to sell our practice to our associates had actually offered up 20% of our practice for sale to our associates and had only managed to sell 6% um, to two associates. So we did have four partners, um, but we didn't have a way internally to have partners buy out my main other partner. And so we were looking for a different partner is basically what we were looking for. Um, and so I think there were a lot of things that were out there. So private equity was out there and um, a bunch of different private equity people um, called us. And what we ended up doing is at that point, Blue Pearl was actually owned by 80 veterinary shareholders. And the model at that point was that all the founders were still in as owners running a group practice altogether. And so what my goal was, was, you know, I was fairly young, was to stay run my practice, but with partnership. And so that was the original model of Blue Pearl. And I think that that's a really intriguing model. The problem is, again, you end up in these situations where on a bigger scale, it's also they ended up with the same problem we on a low scale ran up with, you have these people who started these practices, the practices grow exponentially, and then nobody who comes in later can afford to buy them out. And so, you know, I think it's an industry-wide sort of transition problem. 
Um, and so they ended up getting private equity money and then eventually sold to Mars, which sort of, and nobody's owners anymore. And so that sort of changes your motivation and what it feels like to work there. That, yeah, that makes complete sense. And, you know, I, I picked up when, when you said 75 and 80% of the specialty practices, and, you know, you're absolutely right, that number is higher. I'm wondering with the yesterday news, then yet another uh, acquisition. So the ethos acquired by uh, NBA yesterday. So that's, uh, that's a new, new number there. <clears throat> Yeah, and they recently bought Sage as well. And so you now are at the point where you really have three major players um, sort of on the specialty side, four major players, I guess. Um, so you have, you know, Pathway that owns over 80 practices. You have Mars, um, you know, single family who owns just an enormous number of specialty practices. Um, and then you also have NVA Compassion First, which is owned by a German family that, you know, owns a great deal. And so really the only veterinary group is MedVet and they only own about 30 practices. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So <clears throat> there, there are currently 50 console leaders shopping for practices in, in North America. And, uh, and the overwhelming majority is run by non-vets. That was an interesting thing that we bumped into. And as you said, you, know, you were exiting into the shareholder community, which would contribute with their ideas and the management and the, uh, the know-how you know, of the veterinary domain. But uh, do you think if there is more vets uh, in the leadership positions, consolidation would um, be more attractive as an employer? Or what are your thoughts on this, guys? I think having more veterinarians makes sense. But a lot of that is, are the veterinarians just figureheads or are they genuinely involved in making a difference in the practice? Because, um, and I, I mean, I've seen it both ways, but, and, and not every veterinarian who works for corporate is necessarily good at the management side of it. Um, either you know it's kind of like we routinely take technicians and make them into practice managers and they're terrible at it and just because a veterinarian was a good veterinarian doesn't necessarily mean that he or she is great you know helping be a regional manager or business acquisition person or whatever they are so i think it's a little offensive to not have veterinarians involved but a lot of it comes down to details yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that's interesting is there are studies on the human side that have looked at human medical centers and um, the practice groups on the medical side that are the best outcomes in terms of patient care outcomes, quality measurements, all of those are um, run with CEOs that are MDs. And so I think some of it depends on like what's important to you and what's your motivation. But I do think that the it, but as Karen said, I think it's really important. It, it can't be a figurehead. It makes a difference when your CEO is a veterinarian or an MD, um, not just having somebody who's on one person on the board who's the only veterinary voice out of eight people on the board. And, and I think what's more important about these groups is what your why is. Like, why did the group form? And what I think is so concerning about so many of these groups is most of the groups right now are forming because of the multiples and because of the flip. And they're not forming with the why of how do we provide the best possible care to our veterinary patients? How do we improve the profession? And if our profession is going to be run entirely by groups who are only looking for finance, I think we're going to end up in like 
worse staff shortages and worse burnout than what we're seeing now. Well, and I think at some point too, we're going to have a client revolt because, yes. you know, I mean, I think what a lot of, and this isn't just a corporate thing. I mean, this is individual veterinarians as well, but a lot of, you know, I'm going to improve my profits, so I'm going to raise my fees. And we're certainly getting price pushback now. And at some point people start looking for options, right? And yeah. I mean, you know, part of the reason we have trouble not you know, we have non-veterinary channels for the sale of drugs is that somebody looked at that and said, hey, we can um, we can sell that cheaper to pet owners. And pet owners said, for me, this is a commodity. Why should I spend double at my veterinary practice? And so, um, yeah, I think there could be a lot of challenges if it becomes all about the money. Yeah, can't agree more. And uh, I like uh, I like the, the, the topic of the why, uh, because there's, there's another option there that the why that they're saying to these clinics when they're buying them is one and the why in the boardroom is different. And that's unfortunately, uh, which it's not visible immediately, but as any strategy, when it fractures at the top, you can really see it with the time where it's actually not what they do. That's what they say. So this is this is another, I think, unfortunate part of this. But Beth, you, you did sell uh, to a consolidator and... Um, so what is what do you think is the impact of private equity <clears throat> and what impact it has on our industry? We touched on this a little bit, but if you can dive deeper into uh, what it could lead to and, and uh, yeah, what's your opinion on that? Yeah, so the just to give people a little bit of background, so private equity is basically money set up in funds that is a way to allow investors to invest in non-publicly traded companies. And you know, there's a lot of people who are out there who made money in the stock market, but feel like they have too much money in publicly traded funds. They're looking for places to invest. So they want to invest in other things. But the way these funds are set up is the funds really have a four to five year time frame. And so they put money in and they need to get their money back out again. So it's not permanent money. And I think the hardest thing about this money is the fund managers have a direct responsibility to improve the return on investment for the people who they are investing for. That's where their goal is. So they have no kind of um, obligation either to clients, to veterinarians, or to pets. And their obligation really is lined up with their investors and just because of the way it's set up. The other thing is, is if you're set up that you have to make money in four years, you aren't playing a long game on quality. You're paying, playing a short game on how do I maximize growth and profit margins. And so partly what's driving the acquisitions is the fastest way to grow your revenue bottom line is to buy lots of things. And so you buy all these practices. Well, if, you're, if you buy 60 practices in a year, you are not paying attention to how do you operationally make things better? How do you improve the experience for your employees? And I think that that frothy acquisition and the lack of um, time we're spending on operations is exactly why we have staff shortages on the specialty side right now. It is why it's so hard to get into emergency practices. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's interesting, you know, when um, that's exactly what I've experienced when I when I sold SmartFlow to IDEX, I was trying to, I got to work more with consolidators and it was surprising to me 
because SmartFlow was such an easy sell to veterinarians. I literally had one vet say, did you ever have no on the demo? Like, cause everybody sees it and they go, it makes sense. And then it was not, there's no competition, but uh, then I got into IDEX and I started talking to executives at the consolidation. They just weren't getting it. And I thought, why wouldn't you think that if all vets want to use it? So then I built this pyramid of sort of, you know, the why behind everybody's role in the pyramid. And I started with the pet. What does pet want? What does pet owner want? What does the veterinarian want? And what does the corporate? So pet, pet owner, and the veterinarian really interested in the well-being of the pet. And then when you go to corporate, it's exactly what you said. They're interested in the shareholder value, which is nothing wrong with that because that's their thesis. But there is a major disconnect between the incentives. And then when the shareholders are not people that are working with the with the pet owners and, and the pets, then there's a disconnect. So I, I totally agree with that. Well, and I mean, I think part of it, part of it is the short-term timeframe that we've discussed, but the other part, it's a whole, if you're a corporate group, it is a whole lot easier to buy 50 practices than to improve one. <laughs> you know, I mean, we're not complex well businesses. I get that from a, from a grand scheme, but when you're talking about a lot of people, you're talking about taking care of pets. So there's a level of empathy in veterinary practices that you don't have, you know, in companies that manufacture widgets. Um, you know, running an individual veterinary practice well is not a completely easy thing to do. I don't think most corporate groups are well set up to do that. And yet it's quite easy to go out and buy a bunch of different practices. Now, I do think there's some corporate groups out there who are really recognizing how difficult this is and, and trying to run their practices better and taking some steps to, to, to make that happen. But that's, um, I mean, I think they focus on what's easy. Well, and, and it's easy to run out of time because they, as yeah. said, they have this window of opportunity that they need to turn their, uh, their investment. And this is why another thing that, you know, that, um, uh, you know, in preparation to this webinar, we recorded, what is the one thing that you would ask consolidator? And I mentioned, what is your investment horizon? Because if you need to return your money in three years, it doesn't matter what you tell me when I sell my practice to you. It really is how long you're going to be doing that for what you just promised to me. Because I can promise you, I'm not going to change anything. You be you, do vet medicine, we'll do business. But in three years, they sell it to another person. And that person doesn't make any more deal with the end seller veterinarian. They're dealing with the corporate. So thesis change dramatically. And I don't have any input in that. So I think that that's, that's a very important. And we'll go back to this. But it's one of the questions that I would ask the, the buyer. Uh, you know, how long are you here for and who's funding you? What is that? Is it private equity? How is it structured? What is the horizon of your investment? So I think that's really important. But also what influences the the deal and the uh, uh, and the uh, how they proceed, I think it's the variety of uh, partnership models that exist out there. And then, so what are those sort of joint venture? We, we're hearing those, there's joint, joint partner. Can you, you deal with that probably on a daily basis. Can you tell us more about, uh, you know, different models and pros and cons behind them? Yeah, I mean, I probably would lump practice sales into three groups. And we're talking corporate practice sales here. So not, not sales to individual veterinarians. I mean, one, there's the all cash sale and you're certainly seeing those and in all cash and it may have some kind of an earn out component. So you've got to continue to see growth or whatever to get all of the 
the purchase price. The second is what you mentioned is the joint venture. So the seller veterinarian um, continues to own some portion of the, their individual practice. Usually it's a minority uh, position because usually the corporate group wants a, a majority, though I've, I've seen some that have been different. Um, and then the third one, and this is probably, this is using the term partnership maybe a little bit more loosely, is where the seller veterinarian has no continued ownership in their individual practice, but invests some of their purchase price money in the parent company. So they now own, you know, or have X number of shares in the group of 100 hospitals that the corporate group owns. And, and you know, even a 100% sale, in my mind, is a partnership, depending on how you use how you use the terms, right? So I think you have to separate. Not every corporate group offers all of those options. I think there's a lot of difference in the details, but at least the clients I've been working with, those are the the three main categories that they've been looking at these days. Yeah, interesting, interesting models. And Beth, do you do you have an opinion sort of how these different models influence the relationship post acquisition, and maybe kind of dip back into your experience in this? Yeah, I think um, if you're a seller, you have to think a little bit about what your goal is and what your horizon is. And, you know, again, I think this comes back to what Karen said about, is this a good time to practice? And I think if I was 70 right now and I had was wanting to retire and none of my associates wanted to buy my practice, you can make really good money from a corporate group. But if I was a seller and I'd run my practice for 40 years, I wouldn't want to stay very long. And so I would be negotiating. I wouldn't sell until I was ready to leave. And I'd be negotiating for the shortest time I was committed as possible. Because I think one of the things we don't talk about is if you've built a practice that is your child, and for many people who have done veterinary practices, it's not your business. It's a labor of love. It's what you've done for your career. And watching somebody else change it is incredibly hard. And so the number of practice owners I've talked to who said year and a half was all I could do. It was awful the, that last year. Not everybody, but a, a large enough portion of people that that's why I say you really don't want to have to stay longer than a year if you don't have to. Um, so that's the kind of the decision making I would make if I was 70. If I could negotiate a way to sell and keep a little bit into the parent company, especially if I thought they were going to flip in three years, that is certainly a way to make more money. And you can look at who the funder is. If the funder's private equity and they've been in for three years, they're going to sell in the next year. You want what we call the second bite. And so you want to keep a little money in if you can but only if you don't have to stay for too long um, would be sort of the way I would think about it. Now, if you're selling your practice and you think this group's going to be great, I'm going to be in the management structure for this group, I really want to be all in, then having equity in the big group is certainly what you want to do. But you need to know what your backup plan is because I've certainly had a number of people who thought they were going into one group. I, I know one person who sold his practice to a group. He'd spent a year investigating it. Two months after he sold, they flipped to another owner and he didn't know that was coming. Um, and, you know, that's pretty hard. What's your backup strategy? If you're 40 and you're selling your practice, turns out they're not going to give you a management position. You don't like the group. What's your non-compete? How big is it? Are you going to have to move? Um, are you okay if you work in an associate in somebody else's practice? 
Um, so looking at those parts of the thing, I think are really important. Um, and then I think these partnership agreements, if you're really going to be a partner in the big group, how much say do you have, if any? Because um, I think one of the things we call them partners, but you're not really a partner, you're a shareholder, and usually a small shareholder without a voice. But you almost always, if you become a partner or shareholder, have an incredibly big onerous non-compete. And so you just have to really think about what's the trade-off between the money I'm getting here and the fact that I might not be able to work where I live for three to five years. And am I okay with that? And what am I going to do? So some complicated things you've got to think about. Yeah. And I think these are really great points. And I'd add a couple of things. Um, I think that if any corporate group tells you they're not going to change anything in your practice, run away because that's gonna happen. I mean, it may be as simple as we're just gonna change how the bills are paid and how you purchase equipment and drugs, relatively simple stuff, but it may be that we are gonna, we're gonna totally revamp your management structure and you've got too many employees and they're paid too much and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think that the better run your practice is now, the more smoothly it's run, one, the less you as the seller will probably be committed to having to stay with the practice and the fewer changes they're going to make. The more problems you have in your practice, the more likely they are, if not immediately, but you know, within a year or so, going to come in and make some make some changes. And so I think that um, getting your practice to where it's truly a well-oiled machine, it'll increase the price that you'll get for it, but it's going to give you as a seller more flexibility too. I think it's important to coming back to what Beth is saying, um, you know, what the what the buyer of the practice, the corporate group wants is particularly because prices are so high right now. I mean, they're there. I think the corporate groups and you can certainly understand this are taking more effort to minimize their risk because they're paying such high prices right now. But they want to know that this practice will continue to operate smoothly for a couple of years after they buy it. Now, at some point, it's on the corporate group, right? But there is a transition period there. And so if you, as the owner of the practice, are the only one that knows anything about the management, you don't have a, a good quality manager in place, you produce most of the revenue or a good chunk of it, you're going to have to stay until all of those things can be replaced. If you've got um, a couple of owners, if you've got um, a great long-term practice manager, um, if, if you've just hired another doctor that can replace you, the seller, yeah, then you can, you can probably negotiate a, a shorter time period to stay. So there's a real incentive beyond money to make sure that your practice operates well before you sell it. Totally agree with that. There's there's another interesting thing that I I've uh, observed in the consolidators through the sort of our VIS lens is um, asking the question because you know a lot of consolidators say we'll just you do you we'll do management and everything's going to be great. A good question is to ask what is your value creation plan? Is basically how are you planning as a consolidator to deliver value to your investors? One is arbitrage. You're going to buy a bunch of clinics and resell them. We know that. But if you're planning to expand the margin, what are those one, two, three, four, five things that are on your strategic plan that you're going to implement in my practice and are aligned with your strategy? 
And if they can well articulate that and say, this is exactly what we do. One, because we change, if they change FIMS, why? What does that do to the numbers? We're optimizing COGS or inventory management. How do you do that? How much disturbance to the workflows that we have right now? So be very specific about what is that value do you bring? Not just like we'll buy the practice and everything's gonna be great. What is the value creation plan? There's a caveat to that because quite a few consolidators that, that I've seen, they have value creation plan on their presentation to their investors, not necessarily in their operations. So it's also, you need to understand that they have the thesis and they practice the thesis. So that's also an important thing. Um, but you touched on both guys on, on, uh, on the uh, staff and uh, how they're motivated and managed. So after acquisition, there's definitely a stressful moment. So especially if, you know, the owner or a couple owners benefited from the transaction, they deliver the news and then everybody else thinks about their job security benefit package, whatever they had the agreement with the owner about. So there's quite a lot of things that are happening. So what effect does acquisition have on the team and what to be prepared for and how can we keep the teams motivated during transaction post transaction and when the new change is coming if there is a change i would say there's a couple of things so one of the things we did that i think made our transition go better than it could have at the beginning was we actually told our staff very early and um, different corporations will let you do things in different ways. But we actually said at the point we had signed a letter of intent, but before we had a sale agreement, we are in a negotiation phase and we are a family and we think this is the right thing to, for us for a lot of different reasons. But we want you to know and we want you to find out as much as you can about this group also. And so our staff knew actually way before we signed the agreement that that was going to happen. Now, I think that's fairly unique. That doesn't happen lots of times. But I do think that by doing that, it was less fearful when it actually happened. Um, and so it gave them some information. We also negotiated quite hard for our staff. Um, I think one of the things was that was interesting and sort of disappointing is that actually the way staff were compensated was not as generous as what we had done. And I think that that's more true than people realize. The, the biggest way most corporations minimize um, their costs is that staff is the biggest cost in all veterinary hospitals. And so if you act, ask about value creation, you know, most corporate groups that I've been involved with, and I worked for Pets Choice in the 90s as well, is they won't tell you, but their value creation plan is to minimize your staff costs. And, um, you know, what that means is for most large specialty practices, somewhere around a year and a half and two years after sale, the staff will realize that they are not being compensated as well as they were prior, even though they're part of a bigger group. Um, now, I think some of that's changing because it has to because of supply and demand, but I do think that um, individual veterinarians are often very generous to their staff in the way that you know, corporate consolidators who live 3,000 miles away are not always as willing to be. Um, so I think there's some tricky things, ways to you can get your staff on board, but also things you have to realize about what is likely to happen afterwards. So I think that's interesting. So a couple of things. First of all, I would split 
um, kind of what happens with the team into veterinarians versus support staff. So let's talk about support staff first, because I think it's a little different. My experience has been a little bit different, Beth, than what you're talking about. Um, but I've also, um, I would never say never to anything that might happen in a corporate transaction anymore because they're so variable. And I do think you're right. I think some of this is changing because it has to, because it's so hard to find staff these days. Right. Most of the practice sales that I've been involved in, um, the staff has come out better. You know, they've at least maintained their compensation. Benefits are often better. What I have seen, though, is if if the practice honestly has too many staff, um, it, it, you know, and it doesn't run productively or efficiently, I've certainly seen a downsizing of staff, not necessarily firing people, but when they quit, it do, they don't get rehired. So the staff ends up having to work harder. Um, but again, I think, I think the situation can be very different in any, in any individual sale and with a particular consolidator. The veterinarian piece, I think, is harder these days. I think veterinarians are less likely just to go with the flow. They know what their worth is. They know that they can walk out of this practice today and have a job somewhere else in the community tomorrow. Um, at an equivalently good salary. So, you know, and again, most of the time when I, I've worked with practice sales, the veterinarians have stayed, but sometimes they don't. Um, sometimes they, sometimes there's just an inherent, I don't want to work for corporate, um, That and they can sometimes identify why and sometimes can't. Sometimes they'll try it, find it's not as bad as they thought. Sometimes corporate does some just incredibly stupid things um, that... <laughs> drives people away. And you look at it sometimes and you go, how many times have you onboarded veterinarians? What do you mean you can't keep these people's names straight, straight or tell them accurately what their, you know, their salary is going to be? So, I mean, corporates screw up just like everybody screws up. So it's, um, I, I don't think you can, with veterinarians, you certainly cannot assume that they're all going to stay. And they have a lot of power these days to keep a transaction on track or to derail it. So I think as an owner, as a seller, you want to make sure that um, as a part of your negotiations, you do what you can to make sure it's still going to be a place that the veterinarians are going to want to work. And as a corporate group, I think you've got to work harder at it than you used to. Yeah, I can't agree more. Beth, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say, I think the other thing that is really interesting is, you know, people's individual experience can be very um, much dependent on like, who's your regional medical director, who's mm -hmm. your regional operations per person. Again, all the corporations are different in terms of how these things happen, which parts they do well, which parts they don't. Um, certainly people who have, um, you know, I know lots of practices where there was almost no transition for years and then something else happens. Um, parts of VCA people, you know, I've talked to people for VCA who are like, well, this region is totally different than the rest of VCA. And so really it varies a lot on that middle management level and what they're like. And so I think that's totally true. Yeah. yeah super hard to predict. I think sometimes what's going to, gonna... and I think, you know, as a seller too, you have to, you have to realize you can protect your people and and the uh, whatever legacy and the culture of your practice to a point, but the farther away you get from the sale, the less say you have in that. And particularly once you leave, you know, let's say you're going to stay two years or three years or whatever once you go. So, it, I mean, it's not your practice anymore. I think that's hard for yep. people to accept. 
And, and I think what's really important to remember is even if you are a partner in the larger group, it is not your practice anymore. And so I think that's the biggest message that no matter what they tell you, you're still an owner, you're still an owner. You, it's not your practice. You're not a majority and, owner. <laughs> right, exactly. And so you have to be, again, that's why I sort of say, if you are at retirement age and you are ready to go do something else, this is the perfect time to really look at it because of the multiples. But if this is still a labor of love for you and your profession, it is a really dicey market. And because there's so much flux and so much turnover and you know how your life feels is really dependent on your regional medical director, who and those those are hard positions that sometimes change every two to three years. That even if the money doesn't change, who you report to or who your manager is might change enough that your life feels totally different. So, um, so I just think you know it's not you know there's no free lunch, you know, and so yeah. you have to realize that this money comes with strings and costs and you know, they can't just buy practices without getting some return. And so there's a cost to that. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's, it's a, it's a huge topic that I think three years ago when we started VIS, that was sort of what I was trying to get into. And, and um, I thought that we are in that window of opportunity where not only that we should care about people because we nice people and care about people, but it has a tremendous direct impact on the business. And the last two years show that the scarcity of veterinarians is really driving this market today. It's really not the number of practice anymore. I don't think so. And I more and more call these acquisitions uh, with a term that they use a lot in the tech world, the acquihire. Because people traditionally think that you acquire a business, which is a list of clients, equipment, and your, you know, and your marketing, for example. But right now, when you're acquiring a hospital and you're thinking only on the seller, and then you're the, that's the benefactor, but then you have two more associates that are a part of that EBITDA. And if you're losing a veterinarian today, it takes 10 months to replace one. If they bring 600K a year, that's half a million dollars to bottom line out of the door. So this term acquihire, they use it a lot at Google when they're buying the new tech companies, not because of the tech itself, but the founding team and the entrepreneurs. So I think that that's what we're evolving to in, in the veterinary domain. We're buying businesses with people in it and we need to do everything we can to preserve those people being happy in their workplace. And I think that now finally it's sort of clicking because there's such a scarcity of veterinarians, which, um, which leads to a question about the younger veterinarian. So one, uh, and we have a question from the audience about this. So uh, do we have, uh, do we think that the younger sellers are treated differently by the consolidators than the uh, more senior sellers? And then also, uh, is it attra more attractive for younger veterinarians to, um, to participate in the corporate group because there's a career ladder that could be not just in veterinary vertical, but also in management and pivot within it. Is there any considerations that people have when they're thinking about their sort of future? So about younger veterinarians? I don't think I have a sense about whether younger veterinarians are treated, if you're an owner veterinarian selling your practice at 40 versus 65. I don't think I have a reason to think that they're treated differently, but I have to say most of the sellers that I work with are closer to retirement age. Um, I don't see that many selling at age 40 or whatever. Um, 
you know, if you're a younger seller and and I guess your level of interest and whatever, I mean, I think that's such an individual thing. You know, if you really love the management side of it, which I don't think that many practice owners really do, but some do and are amazing at it, um, you're not going to have the freedom and flexibility as a part of a corporate group that you do um, on your own. Although I, I will say that if you're doing well in the practice, I mean, more power to you, you'll have more freedom and flexibility than if your ideas are not making the practice thrive. There certainly are some opportunities to move up that corporate ladder. I mean, I heard VCA give a talk once before, and I think personally they were getting tired of being beaten up by the profession for being a corporate group. But one of the things that they talked about is, hey, look at all of these job opportunities that we've created. And a lot of it, they were talking about non-veterinarians, but you know, they had, they had the regional manager positions and they had business acquisition types and stuff. And I actually thought it was a really interesting point. They did create some job roles that hadn't been there before. So a lot of it depends on what individuals want. I mean, some people want to work as part of a larger group. They don't want to always, you know, 24-7 have to be in charge of things. So that can work really well. So I'm not sure there's an absolute answer to that. Yeah, I would uh, agree. I do think that there are some really interesting opportunities within these groups. So I um, worked you know, as a medical director in my own practice, and then actually worked as the director of patient safety for Blue Pearl for a period of time. And that's certainly that sort of role is incredibly interesting and challenging. You know, I think the the challenges, you know, become, you know, if you are an owner and you like running your own show, you are part of a corporate structure and you are working for somebody else. And you know, personality-wise, can you deal with that or not? Um, on a veterinary side or an owner side, if you're an owner of practice and you think, I'd like to be a regional medical director, I'd like to do these things. One is there's not that many of those jobs, so you're competing with other people for them. And two, do you really want to be middle management? So I think on the veterinary side, I would say those things. The other, on the staff side, it's sort of similar. There are roles, but there aren't as many roles as there are people working in these practices. And so, and are those roles what you really want to do? Um, so there are some opportunities there. Um, in terms of younger versus older sellers, you know, sort of hard for me to say for sure. I I would say, and this is going to be like probably hard for everybody to hear, but if you are female versus male, there's a difference in your experience when you sell your practice and what's going to happen afterwards. And there's also a difference about how well your voice is going to be heard. And nobody wants to talk about that. Nobody actually realizes they're doing it. I think there's more, way more implicit bias than true bias. But um, if you are a female seller and you think you're going to have a big voice and a corporation where the entire C-suite is made up of male financial people, you won't. You just won't. Not in this market, not in this day and age yet. I so. think if you're a female anything in any kind of an industry, right? Yeah. <laughs> implicit bias is there. Yeah. Yeah, it, it it is just different. And you don't really realize it till you start bumping up against it that, that um, you know, there, there is some weird things happening in the veterinary sphere with having male financial investors coming in. And a lot of the marketing that's going on to younger female veterinarians is, this is too hard for you. You don't really want to do the finance. 
I know it's, you know, too much trouble for you to run your practice. You should just sell to me and I'll take care of you, which is really like, that's the marketing that's out there. And I think it's condescending. And I think there's no reason, you know, as a mom who raised two kids while running a practice, you can do it. You just hire a manager who runs your finances for you, but they work for you rather than you working for somebody else who takes control away. Um, Generational issues here too. Yeah, yeah. Um, Because sometimes, and not always, but sometimes some of the upper level management, and you know, pick pick your corporation of any kind, right? Not just veterinary medicine, are older and just zero understanding of how they come across to a younger generation who thinks differently, looks for different things. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I think um, this, you know, this idea of what is veterinary medicine need to be for this next generation that is, you know, more female, actually more mission driven. If you look at statistics about millennials and Gen Z, you know, this is a generation that really is about cause and purpose, um, but they're also about free time and work-life balance. I, I think, you know, one of the reasons we're seeing so much burnout is we have a generation of people who are coming into practices that weren't built or designed for them. And so in order to have veterinary medicine be sustainable, I think we have to really think about it. What is it that these people want? What drives them. And I I do think if we take away purpose um, and mission, we're going to lose a lot of people in this generation coming up. Can't can't agree more. This is is such a big topic. And I I totally agree with you with the different sort of generationally right now. I think it's sort of the, the days when you're, you know, you got your veterinary degree or law degree or medical degree, and that's who you retire and die. I don't think that's out there anymore. There's sort of, you know, more progressive thinking about it and and the life work-life balance is more uh, important. There's one research that I'm doing sort of in parallel. Um, I'm trying to think of the ways to measure work-life balance because we all talk about it, but what is it really? How do you... How do you quantify it? How can I say I do have a good work-life balance and I don't? So I interviewed a number of veterinarians. It's very interesting. And a lot of it is really the setting the barriers from what I'm hearing. And, uh, and, and we don't do that that well. And especially when we, since we're talking about women, having children, that, that period of time in your life as a male, completely different as a female, and then how do we take care more of people that need more time with their kids and that work-life balance? Because what I felt, uh, I can only talk about my experience, but I was full on working as a veterinarian. And then there is, uh, my son was born. So I, I know that subconscious, I have to be there as well, but I'm so dedicated to work. And now I have these two competing priorities in my head and I get anxiety and just burn out from that. So is there anything that consolidators or corporates can do to focus more on that period of time when we're having kids and especially if mainly women profession these days, is there something that we can do better? Well, I mean, I think this is why women should own their own practices because I, I think about, you know, so I was, my daughter was 10 months when we opened my practice and, you know, I've definitely had people say, well, you know, that was bad mothering to do that. But my, my daughter came to the construction site every day with me. I had tons of quality time with her. She and I did our Costco runs together. We had this period of time where all the women in my practice had kids and they would all come to staff meetings and they'd all have their iPads and they'd all sit together while we had our staff meeting because it was okay to bring your kids to work when we had a staff meeting. We set up 
up Zoom or webinars for our staff meetings really early so people could call in from home. We had people who worked half time, three quarter time, two thirds time, a couple shifts a month because we were really flexible because that's what women want. We all traded with each other. We had a lot of people working 312s because it's easier to do that with kids. Um, there are just you know, and then when I talk to other moms who've owned practices, you know, they had, well, my kids came to work with me all the time when I had to check on this or do these other things. Um, you know, moms who made lots of choice that weren't, weren't necessarily work-life balance, but work-life integration. How do you make your life work so your kids see what you do, your kids can be part of your business, and the corporations have these strict rules about, well, your kid can't come in and, you know, no, you can either work full time or you can work half time, but we don't do two thirds, you know, those kinds of things. I think we really have to, you know, these are the sorts of how do you be flexible so when people can do both um, in a way that is not just so divided, but makes it an integrated whole. And I don't have children, so I can't speak personally, but I've seen practices, Beth, exactly like you're describing what you did with yours. And it's been primarily made up. The owners and most of the associates are women's with children all at the same point in their life. And they've done amazing things to make it all very doable. You know, there was there was one um, that, you know, they put together a school from like grade kindergarten to six or whatever. Wow. Um, and they had daycare centers and all of these different kinds of things that made it very possible. I think that's harder for corporations to get their arms around. They get very and, and I get it to some extent. You get bigger. You've got to have a little bit more structure or whatever. If you're a if you're a, a full time veterinarian with a couple of kids, you can do amazing things open owning your own practice. And there's probably a ton of opportunity at the corporate level. I just think it's harder for corporations to do it. Yeah. And if your C-suite's all male, they're not mm -hmm. going to think about these things because it's not what you're dealing with. You know, no. that's, you that's why you need to take care of these things for right. you. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, that's where the generational diversity, where the racial diversity, where the gender diversity inside of C-suites makes so much difference because you don't understand the lived experience if you haven't had to do it. Um, yeah, absolutely. And uh, it's interesting that you mentioned about the daycare. I mean, with the short, again, horizon of investment, nobody's going to pay attention to those kind of things. But wouldn't it be wonderful if you know, larger or family uh, offices, if now it's so hard to source veterinarians and if having kids nearby is, is a solution. So why not, you know, sponsor or participate in the daycare where they all can, you know, accommodate that part of their life. So it's, uh, it's an interesting topic. Uh, we have specific questions. We're, we're nearing to the top of the hour. Very exciting conversation. And uh, we have a, two questions from Carson. I'll, I'm going to try with the first one. We'll see where we get with this. But Beth, this is to you. So if you could do different something about the sale of your practice, uh, what would that be? What would you change uh, in the transaction or post-transaction or how it was structured or, um, or what happened after? What would you want to be different? You know, I think it's really hard to answer that question um, 
because I think it's hard to know where the world went or was going to. Um, you know, I think the things we did well in the transition is actually as part of the transition, Blue Pearl did allow other people to be partners. And so at the point we became part of Blue Pearl, instead of being four owners, we were actually seven owners. And so there were several of my associates who became actually partners within the transition. And I think financially, that was a very smart move for them and for us. Um, we did, there's a beautiful facility that came out of that um, sale that I think, um, and we brought radiation treatment to the Seattle area and it was not here before and I couldn't afford to do that. And so I think those things were all very good. Um, personally, I learned during the transition that I don't really like working for other people. And, you know, I think, unfortunately, it's really hard to know that until you do it. Um, and, you know, that I also realized that my motivation for doing veterinary medicine is not financial. It's all about patient care and quality and outcomes. And so I think one of the things I would tell people before you sell your practice is you have to take some moment and really think about why you do this. And then the thing I did not do well was the idea of a second sale didn't come on my horizon. And so I had a very good contract and a very good setup for the first sale and was totally sort of flabbergasted by the second sale, um, which gave me a non-compete that was really horrifying. And I don't know if I could have done something differently about negotiating that ahead of time. Um, so I do think the non-compete thing I learned is a big, big deal, especially if you are, you know, not in your 70s and you want to continue to be a veterinarian. Very good advice. Yeah. Yep. And um, the, uh, the interesting question that came through as well is uh, the problem is the lack of business education for vets uh, to better understand the financial side. Um, well, that's why you have people like Karen and Beth. <laughs> Karen does that for a living. But, uh, but the question, do you think vet schools uh, also teach, should also teach business? And as far as I know, Texas A&M and Colorado are the two that have uh, MBA built in, right? Um, so I think that's a fantastic idea. Can I can I talk about this? Because when I was with NCVEI, um, and this has been 15 years ago or so, and when NCVI was in existence even before I joined them, this was one of the things that they were heavily involved with, and the schools were actively involved with this, um, because what had come out of a number of studies 20 years ago is, is this whole issue. And I, I think the veterinary schools have gone through um, 20 years of trying to understand how best do we integrate business. And I think they started out by trying to integrate um, you know, what we would actually think of as real business courses. So um, a finance course, here's a balance sheet, here's an income statement, HR, operations, that sort of thing. And I think what became clear early on is number one, vet students aren't interested in what a balance sheet is at this point in their career, and it's not overly useful. And so over time, a lot of the vet schools have evolved to let's teach more like life skills. Let's teach how to negotiate a contract. Let's teach things like communication. Let's teach um, things about um, interviewing skills. Things that are number one of more interest to veterinary students at this time in their career and more useful. And then with the idea that um, when students are going to need maybe more defined business skills, yeah, now, um, 
now they can go out and they can get that education. Now, one other thing that's happened in the vet schools has been the Veterinary Business Management Association, the VBMA, which is um, an amazing group. So for the students that are interested in business at the beginning, they get involved with, with VBMA. There's a VBMA has a, a little business certificate that they offer for vet students and that sort of thing. Like you said, there are a couple schools that do the, the joint MBA programs as well. So I think um, sometimes when people look at vet schools and they're like, well, why don't you teach what a balance sheet is? I don't think they recognize that this is, this is a topic the schools have actually spent a great deal of time on. And, and, and I think the evolution to where we are now is probably been the right evolution. I mean, I've taught at a lot of veterinary schools. And when I talk about a, a P&L, a profit and loss statement, you know, I got to tell you, there's not a lot of interest <laughs> in that. So, you know, and I get it. I mean, what they're really worried about is, am I going to pass my biochem test next week? You know? So it's, um, you know, does every school do it perfectly? Probably not. Nobody ever does anything perfectly. But, but I think we have to recognize there's probably a limit into how much responsibility a vet school has for teaching HR law and finance. And maybe their role is better spent on these life skills. And then the true business training comes later for those that are going to need it. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, Karen. I, I do think the biggest thing veterinary schools could do right now is help um, young veterinarians understand and negotiate contracts well. Yeah. Because I think the one thing to remember is if you are a young veterinarian negotiating a contract with a corporation, they those co contracts are written by attorneys. And if you don't have them reviewed by an attorney or you don't understand what you're reading, you can get yourself into big trouble. And um, so I do think that we would do better off on a veterinary college level, really emphasizing that. And I would agree that, you know, I, I will say when I graduated from vet school, I had no idea I was going to own a business and I wasn't that interested. And there are lots and lots of resources. If you then decide four to five years later or even 10 years later, I don't want to work for anybody anymore. I want to start my own practice. You know, Bank of America's veterinary group has lots of good advisors and lots of resources to help you. Um, Vin just designed a very nice four-part accounting um, and practice sense finance course. Um, there are lots of really good business consultants out there to help you, veterinary accountants, other sorts of people. And again, what we did for our practice is we knew we were going to be a 24-7 practice. We knew we did not want to do QuickBooks and payroll, and we hired a practice manager. And there's no reason why you as a veterinarian can't hire a good practice manager. You set the direction, you set the vision, and somebody works for you. Um, and so I think that that's the other thing we need to teach people is it's okay to hire people to work for you to help you do these things. And that's, that'll make you happier in the long run. Absolutely. So uh, we're we're at the top of the hour. Very very interesting conversation. One thing that I wanted to mention about um, the sort of this business. From one side, I was like, yeah, this is great to have business. But Karen, you're absolutely right. When I was a vet, I wanted to be an emergency vet. I didn't want to see a PL or anything else. I'll be sleeping through those for sure because I worked the nights in the emergency hospital. And I love that. But I think that one thing, and, and this is sort of what I wanted to mention, is uh, we're doing a lot of research on burnout. We're trying to understand the problem. At, at BIS, we're spending a lot of money and, and focus on doing that. And uh, one of the things that is a hypothesis that we have floating around right now 
now. We don't know how to prove it yet, but we're working on it, is that uh, the goal setting, the long-term goal setting is something that the veterinarians are excellent at because they dream to be a veterinarian when they're eight or 10 and become when they're in their mid-20s, closer to 30. So, But when they graduate, they kind of go to this complete stop when they start practicing unless they advance their career in more um, of other academic uh, or another board certification so if business is the next goal that seems to keep people happier when you set that goal so i think and this is my opinion but i think that teaching veterinarians that the vet school when it ends it's not the end of your goal setting you need to think what's next is it the practice ownership? Is it your board certification? Think of the next goal, because when you arrived after 20 years chasing one thing and you stop, that's where I think people also burn out. And with that, we're sending a survey and I want to make that announcement. So for anybody who will see it on LinkedIn, we're sponsoring a lot of ads to go out in Facebook and LinkedIn. We're doing another survey that we did last year. We collected 1500 participants with the questionnaire on burnout work-life balance and this sort of goal-setting theory, we want to get a slice and see where we're at as an industry. So anybody who is listening, who is a practicing vet or has experience with it, managers, um, vet technicians, and uh, basically everybody in the industry, if uh, if uh, listeners could participate, you guys as well, it would be it would be great to get that slice because we'll write a report and it's going to be totally externalized and white paper written on it. Um, so with that, uh, I appreciate your time. I know you guys are really busy. Thank you very much for your participation. Uh, and thank you for joining me here for this webinar. Thanks, Ivan. Thank you so much for listening to Consolidate That. If you want to hear our new episodes, please find us on any podcast platform. Also, you can learn more about us on our website at vetintegrations.com.